as I begin tonight, I know I've kind of given away what's coming, I understand that. It's hard when faced with the reality of this passage to not be simultaneously grieved by it and moved by it at the same time. And I, uh, <clears throat> I told you guys this already in the, the um, providence of God, I'll say, that I get to preach this message on my son's birthday. And I think about that little boy that I love, my Elisha, my sweet boy. My God saves, his name means... And I think back to when he was born and how traumatic it was and what a hard birth it was. And, you know, they say a C-section from incision to birth is about 30 seconds. He was in for three and a half minutes before they could get him out. There was all kinds of uh, likelihood that he would have some kind of respiration problem. It would be very serious. In fact, probably life-ending. And uh, during the, the C-section, his arm... Uh, kept popping out of the incision and kept trying to push it back in and they snapped his arm when he was being born and, and he came out and he was totally purple like just his whole arm and all this side of his body was purple and of course Monique and I we have no idea what's going on and Monique's laying uh, open on the table and I'm there uh, while they whisk my boy off to the NICU with no indication of this is uh, death or life. So I leave my wife there to go with my son uh, with relative certainty that his life will be ended before it's began. And I think back to that moment when I preached this passage because I remember laying my, my son's life at God's feet because no hands were powerful enough to do anything about it. And I laid my son at his feet to say, He's yours, God. Please save him. And I think about that when I think about this passage because I think about what is asked of Abraham. And it's the only human way I can relate to it is to think about laying my son before God and saying, please save the Lord. And Abraham's story even goes beyond that, doesn't it? Doesn't it? No, not Abraham's not just asked to lay his son at, at God's feet and let him be his. No, he's told, no, you yourself must make the sacrifice. You must take your son's life for me. And I think in that moment, I, I, I really believe Abraham's just a better man of faith than me. I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I'd have the faith to do it. I really don't. The ask is too great. But we'll see Abraham's response tonight. We'll go through Genesis 22, the first part of Genesis 22. The majority of it. Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19. This passage always is referred to in American circles, or at least English circles, as the sacrifice of Isaac. That's actually not how the Jews know it. The Jews refer to it as the Akedah, 
literally means the binding. And it's significant because Isaac isn't sacrificed. So they don't refer to it as the sacrifice of Isaac. It is the binding. We'll see the theological weight of that term when we think about it when we get there. But I want to go through the story so you can see its power. And we'll think about what it tells us about what the future holds for, for not just the people of God, but for creation. What it tells us about the character of this God we have followed. This is the climax of Abraham's story. When the narrative ends at this point, we're basically done with Abraham. He shows up until chapter 25, but it's really just to wrap up the events of his life. The next things that happen is he buys the cave at Machpelah, so there's somewhere for their family to be buried in chapter 23. In chapter 24, he, he needs to find a wife for his son to leave him in, in a secure place. And by 25, that's it. Abraham's dead. He's gone. This is the climax. Once we reach here, we've seen the high point of Abraham. It showed what kind of man he is. Now, if we're thinking about this from what we've talked about, a land, a seed, a blessing, remember we've seen two covenants already. We've seen a covenant of land. We saw that in chapter 15. And we've seen a covenant of the seed. We saw that in chapter 17. So we're missing one more. We're looking for a covenant of blessing. We're looking for that covenant before Abraham's story is out. We've followed the trajectory of land, seed, blessing. So we're waiting for this third piece of the covenant. This blessing piece. I'll tell you what I think happens. But first let's go through the story. Now it came about after all these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. Now, we're given insight by the narrator from the very beginning of this story. We understand from the outset that this is a test. God is testing Abraham so that he might see, well, what's the biblical language? A test from God is to see what is in one's heart. To see what resides there. That's the language of the Pentateuch, where elsewhere it talks about God testing, whether he tests the people of Israel or, or tests Abraham in this instance. He's wanting to find out what's in them. Now, of course, he already knows, but by their actions, it exposes their heart. And so he has a test. So we've been given insight, but I want to remind you that Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. We might know, but he doesn't. Everything that is about to happen, he does thinking it's fully real. That everything that is being said to him is what he's being commanded to do. He doesn't get the inside information that we get. So the Lord says this to him. Abraham's responded and said, Here I am, Lord. What are you asking of me? God said, Take now your son. Please. Is actually what he says. 
Take, please, your son. It's pretty rare in a divine command that the Lord entreats. He uses this please in the language in Hebrew. Reminds us of the significance of what he's about to ask. He does it gently. Listen to the language language with which he speaks of Abraham and Isaac's relationship. Take, please, now, your son, your only son. What happened to the other sons? Lot, the relationship's been destroyed. He's out. He's in the caves. Ishmael, God told him, cast him out. Ishmael's out in the wilderness. The only boy he has left, his only son, Isaac. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So go to this land and, and, and offer your son as a sacrifice to me. What is Abraham thinking at this moment? He must be thinking about the promises. How can the promises be fulfilled if Isaac is killed? He's lost his other sons. He has no heir. Isaac is it. Isaac is it. How can the promises be fulfilled if I sacrifice my son? Interestingly, Abraham's quiet in the narrative. We don't hear what he's thinking. But Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and took two of his young servants, two of his young men, with him and Isaac his son, And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him, the land of Moriah. And on the third day of a three-day journey, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place, the mountain, from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Now, it's hard to know what Abraham means here. Is, is, is he just reticent to tell people what the actual plan is? Maybe. Maybe it's a sign of hope. He, we will return to you. Maybe he just believes that God is going to do something. That could be. could be both. This is a crisis moment for Abraham, isn't it? Imagine the weight of what he's going through. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together, father and son, alone, just the two of them. The enormity and weight of what is being asked of Abraham in between them, really, isn't it? The weight of what Abraham knows and Isaac does not. 
Isaac is most likely a, a teen at this point. Abraham's well into, you know, he's a hundred. He's an old man. He's well into old age. That's significant for what we're going to see. They're walking alone, probably in silence. Quiet. Abraham wondering what God is about to do. So Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father! And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? For the burnt offering, Isaac notices something is amiss. And whether this is the first sign to Isaac of what's about to happen or not, we don't know, but he notices that something is wrong. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so, the two of them walked on together. Isaac breaks the silence with this wondering, this curiosity. Abraham responds that God's going to provide, and it seems like they just continue on in silence. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And he bound Aked, the Akedah. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And he thought that Abraham might back out. He's gone. Abraham's going to go through with this. All these weeks of waiting, and we finally made it to this picture, our background for this series. There's Abraham. I love this picture. I love the intimacy of it because he covers his son's eyes so that his son might not see him kill him looking up to heaven with knife in hand. What's significant about this moment, I don't know if this ever has ever been strange to you, but it's clear that Isaac is a willing sacrifice. Like I told you earlier, Isaac is probably a teen at this point. His father is a hundred you think a 13-year-old could overpower a 100-year-old man? My guess is yes, significantly. That's what's significant about the binding. It shows that Isaac is in complete obedience to his father. He doesn't fight. He doesn't complain there are no words from Isaac none 
if Abraham had wanted to do this, you know, he was worried about his son, and he's like, I gotta do this, why wouldn't he just stab him, or, or, or some kind of surprise or secret? No, it's plain as day what Abraham is doing. He binds him and lays him on the altar. Isaac allows himself to be bound. He allows himself to be put up on the altar. He might have even climbed up there himself when his father told him to. Complete obedience. But as Abraham's about to deliver the killing blow, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And again, Abraham says, Here I am. The angel said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is a, a divine oath. By myself I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. It's interesting here, I told you earlier. This is a divine oath, but there's no covenant made. There's no covenant made between Abraham and the Lord here in this moment. In fact, it seems almost like the Lord is saying, there's nothing I can do greater than swearing by my own character that I will do this. I could not promise in a more concrete, sincere way than promising by the very nature of who I am. I will do this because you have obeyed me, because you listened to my voice. But there's no covenant which is odd. We saw a covenant of the land. It was significant. We saw a covenant of the seed. It was significant. But no covenant of the blessing. That should leave us with something missing, waiting for fulfillment. Why is the land and the seed covenant, why are they prepared? Why are they taken care of and we're still waiting for this blessing, covenant, that we haven't seen? We're waiting for that to be fulfilled. If we understand the story and followed it and saw the first two, where's the third? 
We've seen these three things over and over and over. We're waiting for it. I'll tell you what I think that is when I get to the end of this. This story, it's a powerful story on its own. It, it is. But the power of the story is infinitely magnified when we recognize that in it we see the New Testament. We see this story play out again. And the beauty and power of it is that this story tells us who the Father is and who Jesus is. Because it's this exact story that is the story of the divine relationship in the Gospels. The thing I love about the Akedah is that it shows us the Father. The Father who seems so mysterious and so distant and so detached from what happens to Jesus. We see the poignancy of what he's experiencing in Abraham. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice at the place I tell you, Moriah. You know the only other place where Moriah is used in the, in the Old Testament? Only time it's mentioned. In the Old Testament, one other spot, Second Chronicles. It's mentioned as the place where the temple was built. The sacrifice of Isaac happens on the Temple Mount. And what is that imagery brought to mind in the New Testament? Jesus sacrificed on Moriah. Just like Isaac. We see Jesus in this story, but... In the New Testament, Jesus is so clear to us. He's so right there. We can see Him. We can understand Him. The Father is a mystery in the New Testament to us. We don't know what He's experiencing, what He's going through. We just hear the cry of Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear those things. We hear the crying out of agony in the garden. We think, where was the father? He was taking his boy by the hand and leading him to the altar. Look at Jesus in Genesis 22. What's going on? Abraham, the father, lays the wood on his boy. And the boy himself carries the instrument of his own sacrifice to the place of sacrifice. Is that Jesus? Jesus carries His cross to the place of His sacrifice. Isaac is silent the whole time. What does Isaiah 53 tell us about the suffering servant? The one fulfilled in Jesus. What does... What do the Gospels tell us about Jesus before the Sanhedrin? He was silent, like a lamb before its shearers. 
He did not protest. He did not complain. He was there silent like a lamb going to slaughter. Isaac, the same way. Isaac, the bound one, the one getting up on the altar, the willing sacrifice. Is that Jesus? Allowing himself to be bound. He says it to Caiaphas. Or excuse me, he says it to Pilate in John. If my kingdom was of this world, do you think I would I would be captured right now? You think I would be in this position? You not think that I could call legions of angels to come down and release me if I wanted? No. Jesus did it of his own volition, of his own will. He walked the cross. It says it in John. I have authority to lay my life down and take it up again. We see that connection with Jesus. But the one of the things that I love about this passage is we see the Father. Take your Son, your only Son, the one whom you love, and sacrifice him. And he leads him up the mountain. Just like the Father does with Jesus. Leads him to Moriah. To the place of sacrifice. And what does God do? Unlike Abraham, no one is there to stay God's hand. And he follows through. And he slays his boy. For what? For worthless us. His own boy. His precious boy. The one whom he loves. He loves you that much. He loves you that much. 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 To let his boy die. Not even to let him die, but to kill him himself. To put his hand the knife and slay his son for you. And unlike Abraham where we see this merciful out that God gives him, there's no out for Jesus. He must die. He must die if there's to be any hope for any of us. If there's to be hope or a chance of salvation for any of us, Jesus must die. As a willing sacrifice. So Jesus does. Of course, we know the story doesn't end there. We understand that. Jesus is risen back to life, never to taste death again, and to free us from the tasting death. The true taste of death. The Lord freed us from And what's interesting is there's this promise. I swear by myself I will do it, Abraham. I will do it. But there's no covenant. There's no covenant. I've become convinced that the covenant that we're waiting on in this moment is the new covenant. The covenant of blessing. 
waited on since the days of Abraham. Why? Because until Jesus, the sacrifice was never made. This exact event, the Father slaying the Son as a sacrifice, it must take place before the covenant can happen. With Abraham and Isaac, it doesn't happen. The sign of the covenant, the slaying of the Son, does not happen until Jesus. Then the covenant can be fulfilled. And the way that I was convinced by this, I've told you that I believe the blessing of Abraham to go to all the nations, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. We know that the seed is Christ. Paul says it explicitly in the New Testament, that the seed that was to come was Jesus. I think we've missed the fact that I think the New Testament tells us the blessing is the Spirit. The blessing to come to all the nations is the Spirit. I think Paul says it explicitly, and I've never heard anyone say it. Galatians 3. This is what convinced me. The new covenant, the covenant of blessing that was to come, that was going to be fulfilled, is fulfilled in the new covenant. Because in Galatians 3, listen to what Paul says. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. He's talking about the difference between faith and law. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them, meaning the laws, shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He redeemed us from the curse of the law in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. How does he explain the blessing of Abraham that might come to the Gentiles? What? So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul equates the promise of the Spirit with the blessing of Abraham. He says the blessing of Abraham needed to come to the Gentiles. And what is that blessing? It's that the spirit of promise would be received through faith. He's equating those two. The blessing of Abraham is the spirit of promise through faith. The covenant of blessing is fulfilled in the new covenant. It all comes together in this moment. Every story from the very beginning, the story of the, the creation, the story of the flood, the story of <clears throat> Abraham, every story we've seen so far, and every story throughout the Scriptures is leading to this moment where everything is fulfilled <clears throat> in unison. All the disparate parts coming together in the new covenant. The one enacted by the Father, slaying His Son, Him being risen to life, and the Spirit of promise being poured out on mankind. So that even the Gentiles might come to salvation through faith. That is the story of the ages. Abraham can't even begin to fathom what his obedience is going to 
to bring to pass for humanity. But what does the Lord say to him in that passage? He says, because you have obeyed me, I surely will bless you. I surely will bless all the nations of the earth through you. Again, look at the long-lasting consequences of the person of faith. The one who's obedient. What good can come from that? Abraham's faith leads to the blessing of all the nations. Through his seed, Jesus. Through what his seed, Jesus, has done. And at the same time, I know that's an old story to us. Maybe there's some new things I've brought up tonight, some new aspects. I know that's a story I don't need to get you to believe. I understand that everyone in this room already believes that. They already believe the heart of that story. So I guess what I have to remind you of tonight is the fact that this, we often forget when we think about that story, what it cost Father. We forget the agony of the Father in slaying His Son. Like I said, in the New Testament, He seems so distant and far and, and different from Jesus at times. When we look at this story, we see what He's feeling what he's experiencing, what he went through. But only on a minute level, because his is so much grander than anything Abraham could have felt. Sacrificing not just a son, but the perfect son. The complete son. The son of God. As Christians... We can never forget the cost of that. We can never look at it as a cheap grace. Something that is easy to come by. Something that does not demand everything of us. Look at what it cost Abraham to be a man of faith. Look at what it cost him to follow in obedience. Look at what he was convinced was asked of him. demanded by God, all of us. All of us is demanded by God because He offered everything. How dare we offer anything less in return? The choice is not say the right prayer and be saved forever. This is lordship. This is lifestyle. This is giving it all and saying none of it's mine. It's all yours. And I give it all to you because you gave everything that mattered to you, God. You gave it for me. So all I can offer is what little I have to you. Tonight we're going to take communion. And I think how appropriate we take communion after thinking about the gravity of this story. 
being reminded of the weight of it. The weight of what it cost God as a father. What it cost Jesus, his son. That his spirit would only be poured out once this had been completed. Tonight, as we uh, move over to communion, I'm going to have Tyler lead us in prayer before we take it together. Uh, however you want. But I just want to tell you that, remind you that, God loved you enough to sacrifice everything that mattered to you. Your value was that significant what seems worthless and inconsequential and insignificant in our lives seems like these puny little nothings. <laughs> That's what we seem like when we think about the gravity and grandiosity of who God is. And yet, in His perspective, you were worth the death of Christ. We couldn't even dream of thinking of a person the way God looks at that person. With the love and tenderness and compassion with which He looks at them. We might feel in part when His Spirit gives us ability to feel that. We might feel in part because God's put love in our hearts as human beings because we bear His image. But we could hope, we could hope to begin to feel the love that God has for each one of us. The depth and intensity and, and sincerity of love that He experiences for each human life. Because He laid His own Son's life down and slayed Him on the altar that all humanity might find salvation if they simply believe that they might receive the spirit of promise if they simply believe let's go over it